Hypocrisy was an epithet that Jesus often used to describe the religious of his day. We have a number of references to hypocrisy in the Bible, and especially Matthew, the 23rd chapter, where Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites time and time again, gave examples of their hypocrisy. But what exactly is hypocrisy? It's interesting, the origin of the word in the Greek language has to do with acting of a theatrical part. Acting of a theatrical part. I'm reminded of one of, uh, I think, one of the the all-time classic movies. It was never highly acclaimed by the critics, but I think it was uh, very much loved by the population in general, The Sound of Music. And I saw an interview uh, one time with Christopher Plummer, played the, um, the man who married uh, uh, Maria, uh, Julie Andrews, and he was talking about how he disliked the movie. He was in the movie, but he hated the movie. And he spent most of his time downtown drinking at night, uh, getting drunk because he just, well, that was the, the best part of his, uh, the, the movie. And it, it reminds you of how these actors... And I'm not trying to paint all actors in the same, with the same brush, but uh, nevertheless, they portray themselves one way on the screen, but they can be very different in real life. Uh, Julie Andrews certainly had a, a, you know, an image from that, mus- uh, that uh, sound of music, but was that really the way she was in real life? Well, it's not for us to judge, but I think we recognize that the image that people portray on the screen is very different from that which they really are. And so hypocrisy is the practicing of or the practice of claiming to have one standard in one's life and actual belief and actual life can be very different. It often results because there's a conflict in the mind of an individual as to what he knows is good and right and what his heart wants him to do. Now, we profess by our attendance here at the Holy Days and at the Feast, by our words and our actions, that we look forward to a radically different world, a better world. But do our actions match our works? Are we genuine Christians or are we actors portraying ourselves be one way here and another way away from here? So my question today is, is your heart, uh, in your heart, which world do you love the most? Do you love the world that we portray, that we talk about, that we call tomorrow's world, or do you love the world of today? Now, I think that most of us would say that we're looking forward to the kingdom of God, tomorrow's world. Uh, Even many of our young people, although many of our young people, uh, look forward to it, but they just want it to postpone a little bit so that they can get married, they can start their businesses, they can have their uh, time in the sun, so to speak. And that's, I suppose, natural for a young person. But uh, even those of us who are older, which, which world is it that we really love the most? And that answer, the answer to that is not going to be given by our profession of words, but by our actions by our behavior. Life is made up of many decisions, so many that we, we how, how do we even count them? 
you have to make a decision whether to get up when your alarm clock goes off in the morning. Of course, that's a decision that you made the night before. Uh, you have to make a decision whether to shower, whether to uh, brush your teeth, or whether to comb your hair. All of those things are decisions. In Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, we are very familiar with this passage. We often read it, but I think it's important that we uh, really do more than just memorize it, that we internalize it. Where it says in verse 19, it actually begins in verse 15, but we'll just read verse 19 for now. It says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. I think I may have read this even in the last sermon that I gave here. But God is, through Moses, calling heaven and earth as witnesses against the Israelites that were there, but against us as well, that he has set before us two ways of life. Mr. Armstrong spoke of the two trees He spoke of the way of give as opposed to the way of get. It's not uncommon to find those who want to live in two different worlds. It's a struggle in many ways for all of us. This is especially true, however, of teens and young adults, but no age is immune to this malady. Dennis Prager, who many of you are familiar with, he has some videos, uh, Prager U, as they're called, Uh, Very uh, informative, very good uh, videos on a variety of subjects. He has a tremendous one on the Ten Commandments. But he wrote the Rational Bible. It's a commentary on the Bible. And in the one on Exodus, on page 38, he makes this comment about our world today. It's very up-to-date in every way. He says, yet while an ever-increasing number of people consider themselves agnostic, meaning that they haven't decided yet whether God exists, the great majority of these people live as if they are atheists, bereft of all the magnificent life-enhancing benefits that God-centered life produces. These individuals are agnostics intellectually, but atheists behaviorally. So they may say that, well, they're not sure whether God exists, but when it comes to behavior, they live as though they are atheists. Similarly, those who have one foot in the church and one foot in the world are often intellectually in the church, but behaviorally in the world. They want the safety of the church, but their heart is in the world. Have you ever just thought about it. Why does one have one foot in the church and one foot in the world? I was thinking of that even as I was sitting here uh, meditating a little bit on, on the sermon. Uh, we really, what our, where our heart is, is in the world. Uh, if, if it is not in the world, then why would we have one foot in the world? We would have both feet in the church. But we have one foot in the church... Because intellectually, that's what where we would like to claim we are, but we have that other foot out there in the world. Why? Because of behavior. It's not an intellectual thing that we have one foot in the world. It is behavior that is the reason that we have that other foot there. In First Kings, the 18th chapter, 
1 Kings 18, I'll begin in verse 17. It says, Then it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house uh, have, in that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the eternal is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And we see here that the people answered him not a word. Even when they were confronted with a choice, they really weren't sure. They might say they were agnostics as to where God was working. Whether the eternal, the God of Israel, was truly God or whether Baal was God. Now, the New Bible Commentary Revised has a very uh, interesting comment on this. I may have read it here before. But it says, on verse 21, it says, It seems to be literally, quote, Till when are you hopping at two forks? The sin of the people had been not in rejecting the worship of Yahweh, but in trying to combine it with the worship of Baal. Such syncretism, or the blending of two ideas, is always considered to be broad-minded. But Yahweh of Israel left no room for other gods. Now, some to this day in the church hang on to false religious concepts from the past, perhaps quietly so. Some people may have spoken in tongues, for example, before, and they realize that we don't do it here, but in private may try to speak in tongues as they view tongues in this world's way. I think that there are people that were part of worldwide. I heard of uh, some cases where they actually kept Christmas privately. There are those who hang on to various holidays of this world to one degree or another. Uh, some people get very much into birthdays when the Bible really is not very favorable toward birthdays if you look at the whole picture of it. But people think they have a better idea, and I'm not saying you can't recognize that somebody's turned another year or whatever, but the big party atmosphere that goes along with it, uh, people have different ideas, don't they? There may be people here who believe in the Trinity or the immortal soul or have different, different ideas. There are people that have rather strange ideas that the earth is flat. Uh, that, that, that exists in the church. Uh, I don't know that's religious, but... Uh, well, it, it actually does, if I understand it correctly, does have certain religious overtones. People try to say that the Bible uh, indicates that. I don't know all the arguments for it. But, but honestly, we're not living in reality. Uh, anybody that's ever traveled internationally, uh, overseas, different places, 
you know, you, you go one way and you, you, but they have answers for all those things. No matter what you say, there are always answers. But uh, all these satellites that are up there are all just fake. I mean, we spend a lot of money trying to preserve a lie, don't we, in this world? Uh, why would mankind want to preserve the lie that the earth is round when in reality it's flat, as some people think? Well, people have different ideas, and sometimes we hang on to various religious ideas. Uh, we don't want to give up certain things. People find it very difficult to give up uh, pictures of what uh, they think Christ looks like or giving up uh, crosses, uh, not realizing that if Christ had been hung that we'd be hanging a hangman's noose around our neck, I suppose, uh, really not realizing that uh, the cross has very ancient uh, origins and was not really a, a symbol. Well, it, it, we, we don't know whether Christ was crucified on a, on a cross or a stake or exactly whatever, the word staros. But, uh, you know, certain ideas, certain concepts that people have that they want to hang on to. Others can't decide which world they want to be a part of. Intellectually, they're in the church, but behaviorally, they're in the world. In Luke, the 16th chapter, it tells us that we cannot serve two masters. And it shows that one will take precedent over the other. Luke 16, verse 10 says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now, he's talking about how we use money and so forth. And he's going back to this uh, steward, this unjust steward. But notice the principle that we read of in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will lo- be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, the individual who wants to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world is in reality at heart in the world. Otherwise, why would he want to even have a foot there? Uh, We have temptations, of course. Every one of us uh, is tempted to be a part of the world in one way or another, probably many ways, but where is our heart? Is it truly in the world or is it in the truth of God? In Matthew, the seventh chapter, it tells us that this way of life is not an easy way of life. And I think sometimes that's why, even though we give sermons such as this, we have to cut each other a little bit of slack when it comes to personal relationships. Because it's not easy. God never told us he was calling us to an easy way of life. In Matthew 7, chapter verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, right here in that Sermon on the Mount that uh, Mr. Mr. Jake, uh, yes, that Jake was talking about here, Jake Hall. Um, It says, Enter... By the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many 
who go in by it. Many who go in by it. I think when the breakup of the worldwide church that some of us were a part of, I think that that was a, an, a lesson for all of us, that there could be so many people who sat here beside us, not necessarily in this auditorium, but in other words, that sat with us at the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, 156,000 approximately that were, were there at the Feast of Tabernacles all at the same time toward the end of, of worldwide, and yet... Where is everybody? And you just have to wonder, what was wrong? Why did people not stay with the truth? There was something that was missing. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. It's not an easy life. It is difficult. And yet God makes it clear that he is with us and we can make it. Every one of us can make it, but we have to do our part. We have to do our part. Difficult is the way which leads life, and there are few who find it. Now, others have gone before us who are forced to make the same choices that we have to make. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we have a whole chapter describing individuals who face difficulties, and to be honest with you, their difficulties, the ones that are listed here, were far more difficult than the problems that you and I have tended to face for the most part. Uh, I know that there are those who face serious illnesses. There are those who lose jobs over the Sabbath, over the holy days. I know those are trials. But we, even when a person loses a job in our society, uh, most people don't end up out on the, the street corner. I say most people. Now, every time I come off the, the uh, 45 and get onto Providence Road, there's, uh, there's one fellow that uh, e- each week he's out there. Uh, you know, the help wanted signs a lot of places, and uh, there is work, but, uh, you know, we, you've always got people out there. Um, in fact, who was it? Was it... Uh, Mr. Simone said there are three things you always had. I'm glad you continued to tell us about your suits because I was wondering if you were running around uh, in your underwear, if, if that was something that you were remembering. It kind of reminds me of uh, the naked cowboy in New York. Uh, we were with the McNairs one time, and they took us out to see the naked cowboy, and he runs around with a, I think he has a cowboy hat and boots and and underwear, and he's got his guitar, and, and he's a beggar, and everybody gives him money, I guess. Uh, we didn't happen to, but uh, he must make a pretty good living out there. Um, you know, most people don't end up that way. Uh, in our world, in our Western society, it's not that way every place around the world, but in our Western nations, there are all kinds of safety nets to take care of people, and, uh, you know, we, we don't end up on the outside that way. So our trials are pretty minor compared to what we read there in Hebrews, uh, the 11th chapter. Those were really serious trials that they faced. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction or suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I like the old King James on this, where it says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he looked to the reward. Uh, going back, uh, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, uh, as opposed to. Uh, oh, that's that's not the that's not the old King James. How did I get that there? Uh, anyway, it's the uh, the pleasures of sin for a season. I think is the way it puts it. That there is sin that is pleasurable for a season, for a time. But there's a penalty that is paid later on, uh, usually just a natural penalty. It's not where God has to come down and slam us to the ground or something. It's our actions that bring about the, the, uh, uh, the sin, or not the sin, but the, the consequences of sin. So it says here in verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And it goes on to show that he kept the Passover and various other things there. But now when we look at that, we see that Moses faced a decision in life, just as each of us have to face that decision. Are we going to be a part of perhaps our family if they weren't in the church, or a part of our friends if we were in high school or uh, university? Uh, or our coworkers, or our neighbors, are we going to follow that route or are we going to follow a route that is not so easy when you have to tell your neighbor, well, no, I really don't keep Christmas or uh, no, I, I can't eat that, uh, you know, that uh, sausage that you're serving me, whatever it might be at the time. Uh, we face these all the time, don't we? And it's not really that big of a deal in one sense, but it is. It's, it's something that is difficult for us. Uh, sometimes it might be a little embarrassing. But think about Moses. Here he was in Pharaoh's palace. He had just about anything he wanted. Uh, he was living in luxury. Whatever he wanted, he could pretty well have. And yet he chose a different way of life. And he ended up out in a more wilderness area. Tending sheep as a, as a result of it all. But God had something else in mind for him because he was able to make that hard choice, that difficult decision. Now, what were the greater riches that he was looking to? Well, back in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith. It's talking about other people, people that were before Moses, but it's really talking of all of these individuals in, the, in this chapter, uh, ultimately. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them. Notice that they were assured of the promises that were made. They recognized that the promises that were given to them, and most of those were were of a verbal sort because at this point where we're talking about here, we don't have the written word of God. And Abraham was told that he was going to be a father of many nations and waited some 25 years before God blessed him with a child when he was past the normal age to sire a child and Sarah was beyond the, the normal childbearing age at that time. And so he could have easily said, well, Whoever this, this is that's talking to me doesn't know what he's talking about. But he trusted God. He did not waver in faith. And so they received the promises. 
uh, I'm sorry, they, they did not receive the ultimate goal, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They recognized that this is not where the end result is that I want. This is not, this is not my true home I am looking for. And as I've said so many times, our lives are very short. They're extremely short. And, and when you just look at it, those of us who are older, we recognize that, don't we? I'm in my 70s. How long do people live? Uh, I don't anticipate living to be 100. I don't anticipate living to be 90. Now, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But once you get in your 70s, things begin to happen. Little things become big things. And we just don't know how long we're going to be here. Not a one of us in this room, I don't care what your age is, knows that you're going to live to see tomorrow morning. Now, we trust that we all will, but what is it that's important to us? Because if it's the here and now, it's temporary. Some It may be more temporary for some than others, but it's still temporary. It's short-lived. He says here that um, these, these greater riches, they were looking for something else. They embraced the promises that were made. Do we look to that world to come, that tomorrow's world that we, that's the name of our program, that's the name of our magazine. We, we go to the Feast of Tabernacles to look forward to a thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. And then on beyond that, in the last great day of the feast, we look a thousand years down the road to that time when our loved ones and our friends and those who really never got it, that never really understood, are going to have their opportunity. Those little people that were handicapped, uh, my wife used to work with severely handicapped children, and, and to, to recognize the day will come when they will be healed and they will be given an opportunity to know the truth. How wonderful it is that God is not going to forget anyone. Not a single person that's ever lived will be forgotten. Everyone will be given an opportunity eventually. And when we, we look to such rewards as that, when we look to a, a world where we can live without pain, without suffering, with no more sorrow or crying, when you read what it says there in Revelation, the 21st and 22nd chapters, when you read our booklet on the subject of tomorrow's world, what it will be like, and you meditate on those things, it ought to inspire us to make a choice in the right direction. In 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 6, or these verses, beginning in... Uh, Verse 11 says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Now, the Apostle Paul, being uh, more emotional, perhaps, than many of us are today. Uh, we have people from other cultures that just tend to be more emotional. I see Mr. Hernandez back there. He's always talking about his, his Latin emotions there and. And uh, those who are Jewish, uh, 
Now, Paul wasn't exactly Jewish, but he was certainly around a lot of Jews. He was a Benjamite, but uh, nevertheless, uh, he was probably more of that uh, persuasion. He says, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. He is pleading with the Corinthians. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same same I speak uh, as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Uh, we, we often refer to this particular verse when we get into the subject of who we should date. Should you date someone outside the church? When dating can lead to marriage, uh, you know, there are people who think that, well, just dating out in the world is, is okay. Well, you know, are we unequally yoked together? Do they, does everybody have the same standard of dating that we ought to have as young people or even older people? I've known older people that have dated this world's way. But do we look at it from God's perspective, flee fornication, not be involved in uh, sex before marriage, do we look at it that way? Or do we just say, well, I, I think I'll just marry anybody and bring them into the church with me. And sometimes that happens, but more often than not, it doesn't. For every story you can give, I can probably give five that didn't work out. And so often what seems to work out at the beginning, beginning doesn't always work out. But he says, don't be unequally yoked together. What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, I hope that we love our neighbors. I hope we know our neighbors. Uh, as I've said before, I, I really appreciate living in a neighborhood where uh, it's, it's really friendly, really helpful. Last was it Monday, I guess, Labor Day. My wife and I labored on Labor Day. It was hot, and we were working outside, and she... We had 45 bags of mulch to put down and, uh, and, and mowing the lawn after that and some weeding and different things. And our neighbor across the street came over and brought us a couple bottles of water. And then she went back and she got some of these little ice, I don't know what they call them. I, I've never bought them, but they, they're kind of a fruity type thing with full of ice. And, you know, you have to, well, you eat them. So she brought that over to us. She felt sorry for us. Uh, you know, we love our neighbors, but don't become unequally yoked together in businesses and, um, you know, if a partnership or something like that with someone in the world. It doesn't work out very well a lot of times because they have different, different uh, business ideas and so forth, uh, especially marriage. Uh, there are those who are in a marriage that's unequal, and we hope that everybody makes that work out. You try to, but you don't enter into something like that knowingly. And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God is walking amongst us. He is with us says, therefore, come out from among them 
and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And I love this verse, verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. I love it because God includes the ladies or uh, ladies in that particular passage uh, that we're not all going to be exactly the same. We're not all going to be some, well, I don't know. I better not get into speculation, but I, I think that Mrs. Armstrong once said that she couldn't imagine herself in the kingdom of God being flat-chested, so we take it for whatever it's worth. Uh, not that what she thought is necessarily the way things are, but uh, we take one scripture where people are trying to uh, set a trap for Christ, and sometimes we maybe extrapolate more than should be. Uh, I can't imagine in the kingdom of God that with the character that we've built, with our emotions, with everything that we have, that we're suddenly going to be all some sort of a, an hermaphrodite, uh, hermaphrodite, whatever, uh, uh, just uh, at neither whatever. Uh, there, there's got to be some difference even in the kingdom of God in terms of the way that God has made us. We don't just suddenly totally change in the kingdom of God. Uh, what we do here on this earth is going to carry over to some degree into uh, tomorrow's world. We'll grow and we'll probably change a thousand years from now. We could, might say that we'll be totally different than we were a thousand years earlier, but nevertheless, uh, God has, has made us different. And those differences are going to be preserved to some degree. Uh, there are people that are, uh, you know, far more emotional than others, as I mentioned. And I can't imagine the kingdom of God were just going to kind of blend into being exactly the same. God loves variety. He loves variety. That's why he created different races, different nationalities. He created within us the ability to be different, to not all be the same. We don't look alike. We don't think exactly alike. We don't talk uh, exactly alike. But nevertheless, our focus can be alike. We can be one in focus and purpose and the direction we're going in life, the overall direction. And God wants us to be one in that way, but he does make us different. He loves the differences. In Isaiah, the 30th chapter, we see that after Christ returns, that we're going to be dealing with human beings. And he shows that those individuals who are physical human beings are going to have their trials and difficulties. Verse 20 of Isaiah 30 says, Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, so yes, even during the millennium, I think we don't focus in on this part of the verse very, very often, but, yes, there are going to be trials. There are going to be difficulties. It's not going to be perfect because there will be physical human beings. They will still fall down. They will still get hurt in that way. We're not going to walk around and prevent them from ever running into anything if they don't pay attention to what they're doing, that they'll never fall or stumble or anything like that. No, they're... They're going to have their problems. It says, though the Lord give you the bread of affliction, and the water, or the uh, bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yeah, your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. 
Now, I think that sometimes we can over, uh, we can read more into that than is intended. Uh, we're not going to be there. Every little mistake that they make or are ready to make, stop them from doing it. They have free moral agency, just as we have free moral agency. They'll have the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes, just as we have the opportunity to learn from our mistakes. But nevertheless, this is what you and I are going to be doing when someone is going to make a really big, bad, terrible mistake that could affect other people. We're going to step in. We're going to say, hold it, hold it. This is the way, walk in it. Uh, To what degree that is, I don't know. But I'm sure Christ will give us guidelines how we are to conduct ourselves as spirit beings. But we, we know that we're going to be there to teach people, to show them the right way of life. And how can we do that if we haven't internalized that way, if we haven't come to deeply believe that way? We'll teach the way of purity, the way of honor, the way of respect for one another, the way of peace. In Micah, the fourth chapter, Micah 4, a very familiar passage of Scripture. We often read it at the Feast of Tabernacles, but we read it other times as well. Micah 4, verse 1 says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, or the government of the Lord, or the eternal. To the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. This will be our responsibility in the future, to teach others a better way of life. And we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Dr. Meredith used to always encourage us, I say always, uh, from time to time, he would encourage us to read uh, the the law, the first five books of the Bible, but uh, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and read those passages and, and meditate on those things. Uh, I've found it very helpful, and I'm not necessarily recommending this for everyone. Uh, Dennis Prager's book on uh, on Exodus. It's very interesting to see the the Jewish perspective, because he is Jewish, and to see the Jewish perspective on the Torah. Um, And and I, I have to constantly think, okay, now he says this, but what did Jesus say? Uh, As he points out, the Torah is geared toward behavior, not thought. In other words, it, it, it talks about how we behave. It's more concerned with how we behave than what is in the mind. And he does point out that the 10th commandment is the only one that does deal with the mind. Now, in, in many respects, he may be right. But I would hate for a member of the church to to read everything that he writes and just leave it there. Because Jesus went on to, as was mentioned by Mr. Hall in the sermonette, to teach us that to fill the law to the full, to expand the law, not to leave it as it was. The next verse, in fact, over there, let's just turn over there to uh, Matthew the... 
fifth chapter again. And the next verse is really related to it. Okay, Matthew 5. And verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So when you look at the Torah, the law, from a Jewish perspective, it can be helpful and maybe expanding our minds to try to understand what was the original intent of it. I find that very helpful that way. But we can't stop there because the New Testament, specifically the words of Jesus, show us that we have to go beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. If they kept it physically, they thought that they were okay. But God wants us to keep the spirit, the intent of the law. So meditating on the law, uh, figuring it out, maybe reading some other sources on it uh, without, you know, going too far astray uh, might be helpful to at least understand how others have perceived those laws. And, and sometimes they do have uh, resources such as the original Hebrew language and what was the intent of it. And so there are things that you can learn from it. Again, I, I'm not necessarily recommending uh, that book for, for everybody, but uh, it can be helpful for some. But you have to be very careful how you read when you read some of those things, not to go astray. But in Micah, again, the fourth chapter, he's talking about the law is going to go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What would you do to bring about peace in the world? What would you be willing to give up if you could bring peace a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now? In reality, it's not that far away. What are we willing to give up that we could have peace in the world because you and I are going to have a part in it. Christ is the one that will bring it about, but he's going to use us as brothers and sisters collectively as the bride, his bride, to carry out his desires and his wishes and to bring about peace. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Verse 4, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. We don't live in a whole lot of fear in this country. At least I don't think we do. Uh, We do have our fears. We have fear of getting sick. Sometimes people worry about getting cancer. They worry about heart disease. They worry about, you know, various things like that. We sometimes worry about losing a job and everything. But uh, when you think about people that live in say, Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq or some of these other parts of the world, many, many other parts of the world besides the Middle East, uh, those are individuals who fear. They fear for their lives every time they go to the market. 
but they'll neither learn war anymore, and they'll have their own vine, their own fig tree, figuratively speaking. doesn't mean everybody's going to have to have a fig tree. Some people don't like figs. I happen to like figs, but um, nevertheless, uh, the point is everybody's going to have his little plot of land, his, his place, his space, his peace. Picture a, a peaceful environment. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God has spoken. He says it's going to happen. And if we really think about it, it will happen. Not just because we think about it, but if we meditate on God's word and consider what what he's given us, it's going to happen. There are four questions. How can we teach others if by our actions we don't embrace God's way? If we don't embrace God's way of life, if we don't embrace, for example, we have a number of announcements in the bulletin on modesty and how to dress and so forth. And I will say this, that I was a bit shocked when I was in Belgium for the summer camp there. I didn't go swimming because they had a swimming pool there. But in that part of the world, they don't want you wearing something that you could wear elsewhere, you know, shorts where you could be playing ultimate Frisbee and breaking a leg or doing all the things that the rest of you do playing ultimate Frisbee. It seems like the most dangerous sport in this part of the country. Um, I guess we're show of hands of how many have broken this and whatever. But anyway, uh, you know, they don't want you to wear something you wear for that, so they demand that you wear a Speedo if you're a guy. That's why I don't go swimming in Belgium. Uh, I, I think, though, that on the beach it might be a different thing, but there are cultural differences and issues that you have to take into account. So sometimes announcements that we make uh, that apply to us here may not apply in quite the same way in another part of the world. We just have to, to recognize that. You know, when, when the Apostle Paul, and, and this may be counterproductive to say these things, but when they had, you know, the Olympics back then, and they cast off every weight that might hold them down. They, they ran in their birthday suits. Uh, that was different back then. I'm thankful that we're a little bit more modest in our world today. But the way that some people dress is anything but modest. And there are people that, you know, in the church that have their own standards. Well, that's just me. That's, that's the way I want to dress. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. How are we going to teach Tomorrow's world, I guess you teach different standards. Do we have different standards? We have to work together, don't we? But God is working through his ministry. It's hard to believe that, I know, sometimes. But God is working through his ministry to try to to guide, to try to encourage in a little bit higher standard of, of doing things. And even if we go a little bit off in one direction, how are we harmed? When I say well, some things like dress standards, some people might say, well, that's too strict. Who's harmed by that? Who's harmed by that? I, I, I don't think it was here that I mentioned it, but you know, after you speak so many places, you can't remember where you've said what. But I think it was in Phoenix was I there last week or was I here last? I was here last week. Okay, but I didn't speak here last week. Not Phoenix, uh, Las Vegas. Uh, anyway, uh, we were 
on a bus going back to the airport after we had um, <clears throat> gotten rid of our, our car there or dropped it off. And there was a, a young lady. Uh, they say young. She wasn't a teenager. But she had a, a beautiful three-quarters length, as I recall, orange pleated skirt. Now, I, I, I told my wife that What's interesting today is that we live in a world where we can, where our ladies can dress any way that they want to just about. Some of them have dresses that go down to their ankles. You can get away with that in today's world. That's okay. There are people in the world dressed that way. This particular lady had a beautiful pleated skirt, you know, very narrow, very fine pleats, whatever, just a beautiful orange skirt, and uh, it was three-quarters length, about halfway down her, between her knees and her, and, and her feet. You can have something that is knee length, or you can have something that is what we might think of as immodest. You, you can do it all. Now, when my wife was growing up, when the skirts came up, they all came up. There was, no, there was no variety. You either dressed like the world did or you stood out. And you looked like, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, oh, I better not pick on any particular religion, but there, there are certain ones that dress a certain way that we, we look as old-fashioned, dressing like your grandmother or something. It was a little bit more difficult. Even when I was in college, the, the girls faced some of those things because everybody was uniform. Uh, today, anything goes. And that's not necessarily good, but in some ways, for us, it can be good. Because you can dress modest today and not be out of step with the whole world. You know, I was in step the other day. I went for a walk, and I felt really uh, fashionable because I have a a pair of uh, uh, white jeans, and the knee has been ripped out of it. <laughs> and I felt very fashionable. Now, when I was a kid, that would not have been a fashion statement. They would have said, that poor fellow. I, I look at it today, and I think, wow, that is, okay, enough said. Now, if, if you want to wear that, something like that, I mean, that's up to you. I, I, hey, I walked in my neighborhood with the knee torn out because that's, that's okay today. You can do that. But how can we teach others if our own actions are not embracing God's way? Do we love that heavenly country that we read of in Scripture, or do we love this world? Which is it that we love the most? Do we... Or do we not esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt? These are questions that we can ask ourselves. And do we look to the reward or to the here and now? Whatever is comfortable right now. You know, the answer to these questions are given not by our words, but by our behavior. That's how we answer these questions. Are you taking a stand by your actions? In 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, 
1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. It says this. It says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. How brave are we? How strong are we? Are we standing fast in the faith or are we just drifting along with the world? And 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4. And let's begin in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past uh, lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and an abominable idolatries. You know, we've had times in the church where some of our younger people were just uh, into a lot of drinking, a lot of heavy drinking. I'm not aware of any of that right at the moment. Uh, I think we have probably about as fine a group of young people in general in the church as we've ever had, Uh, maybe not more than some other times. We have a a terrific bunch of young people, I know here, but also in other parts of the country from what I I, I seem to see, but I, I know I don't see everything. I don't know everything. But there are those who... Uh, you know, it's uh, let, let's just uh, go here and buy a you know 24 pack or whatever it is for two people or three people, and and uh, that's that's entertainment. That's how you spend a Saturday night. Speaks of drinking parties and abominable idolatries. It says in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them to the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Now, the old King James has it a little different. I like that better. It says, wherein they think it strange that you do not run with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. So do we stand up when a situation is a bad situation? We sometimes find ourselves, uh, somebody invites us someplace, we go there, and then we find that it's not exactly what we had anticipated Uh, Do we find ourselves standing up and leaving, standing up for the truth and saying, look, this is not uh, what I expected, I'm not going to be a party to this, or do we just go along with it? What is our, our, our strength? Do we have the strength to stand up, to stand fast in the faith? In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll... Start in verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, And such were some of you. 
I'm sure that that would apply even here. Such were some of you. Some of you didn't grow up in the church. You grew up in the world. But you've changed. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were cleaned up. You're made pure before God. But you were sanctified. You were set apart. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We can thank God that when we come to real repentance, when we go under the water at baptism, that every sin that we've ever committed has been forgiven. And I don't know anybody that can come up out of the water and not rejoice over that. I know that we all have different emotions and we all have different sins that we we feel guilty about, but we all feel guilty about something out there that we've done that we knew we shouldn't do. At least we we should if we're coming to real repentance. We, We should be able to recognize sin in our lives. But we're washed, not the water washing us as such, it's, it's symbolic. It's symbolic that Christ has paid that penalty for us and we put our old self into the grave and we come up a brand new person. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We can be so thankful for that. In Second Chronicles, the 34th chapter, Second Chronicles 34, it's talking about Josiah, the time of Josiah, And it's interesting, just the way it puts it here, uh, verse 29, uh, 2 Chronicles 34, 29. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Eternal with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and Levites, and all the people great and small. And he read in the hearing of all all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Eternal, Verse 31, then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the eternal to follow the eternal and to keep his commandments and his testimony and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. Verse 32, and he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. He made them all take a stand. Not just talking about standing up physically. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Now it says he made them take a stand, and when you look at uh, the Jews and Israel in general, uh, they were very fickle. Uh, what they did today was not always what happened a little bit later on. But He forced them to take a stand somehow to commit themselves to keeping this covenant. He all made them uh, take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the eternal their God. All his days, they did not depart from following the eternal God of their fathers. So he must have been a very persuasive individual, very very strong, courageous individual when you think about it, how he destroyed a lot of the, uh, the idolatry that was there. 
but he forced them to take a stand to obey God. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 19, going back to that greatest of all speeches, as it were, Matthew 6, verse 19, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth, rust, and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is our heart? That's part of the question here. Where is our heart? Where is our treasure? Is it the here and now? Or is the here and now merely preparation time for the kingdom of God? You know, I think I know the answer for most of us, if not all of us. Sure, there are going to be some teenagers here that are still sorting things out, and that's understandable. It's understandable. But for most of us, it is the kingdom of God, isn't it? I think that that really is applying to to most people. But we live in a hedonistic world. And the problem is that that hedonistic world rubs off. And so we have this constant struggle, as the Apostle Paul described it. What he wanted to do, he didn't do. And what he didn't want to do, he ended up doing. The seventh chapter of, of the book of Romans. But hedonism is the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is a sole or chief good in life. And whether we realize it or not, sometimes that is what is important to us is just having fun, just having a good time. It's not always looking at the long term, how can I best use my time? I don't know about you, but I, I waste time. And after I've wasted time, I think, well, what did I accomplish? What what good was that? Now, there's time that should be down. We shouldn't have to have our nose in the Bible every minute of every day. We shouldn't have to be reading a book all the time. We should be able to do a variety of things. We can, uh, you know, some people are into golf occasionally. Some people are into fishing or hunting or uh, just gardening for some people is entertainment. You should be able to sit and watch the, the hummingbirds, as my wife and I do, uh, at breakfast time, watching the, uh, the one come down there and chase all the other ones away. You know, it's, uh, they are really greedy little guys, uh, some of them. And, and there's plenty of food. That bird feeder that my wife puts up there has more sugar water than you could, they could ever want. In fact, she has to clean it out and change it once a week so it doesn't mold or something because they can't drain it in the time that she gives them. But, you know, it's fun to watch them, isn't it? And it's, it's fun to do a lot of things. So we don't have to be working every minute of every day, but think about how we do use our time. Are we using it for tomorrow, for what's ahead Or is it just this hedonistic world of one pleasure after another? The world cries out, live for today. But Scripture says there's coming a better day. And that better day is worth preparing for. As we know in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, we're commanded not to love the world nor the things in the world for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's coming to an end. This world is coming to an end. 
So the question is, in which world are you betting your life? Because you really are betting your life one way or another. You know, our challenge today, in a lot of ways, is not to be laid a sin. We all know Revelation 3, verses 14 and beyond, where it's talking about being laid a sin. I like this quote from William Ramsey, who wrote uh, The Letters to the Seven Churches. And he speaks of Laodicea in this way. He says, There is no city whose spirit and nature are more difficult to describe than Laodicea. There are no extremes and hardly any very strongly marked features. But in this even balance lies its particular character. Those were the qualities that contributed to make it essentially the successful trading city, the city of bankers and finance, which could adapt itself to the needs and wishes of others, ever pliable and accommodating, full of the spirit of compromise. Now, that was written in the early, what was it, 1907, 1908. And it's talking about a, a time, in reality, that pictures the spirit of compromise. That's what Laodicea is. And it's so easy for us to have one foot here and one foot there to compromise, and yet we can't afford to do so. We've been called or been given a calling beyond our dreams. God has loved you and me enough to call us at this time and say, I'm offering to you, you know, the mega lottery, far bigger than, than winning the lottery. I'm offering to you eternal life, but more so I'm giving you a part, an opportunity to be a part of the bride of Christ and to be able to be in, as it were, on the ground floor. But we have to make a decision, a decision whether we love the, the potential that is before us or whether we love the here and the now. This present world with all its headache and suffering is one side. The other side is the world that we picture during the Feast of Tabernacles, last great day. The world that we picture with tomorrow's world telecast, tomorrow's world magazine, all of our literature, the world that we talk about so often. If it is the latter, if that's the world we look for, then let us throw in our lot with those who have gone before us. Let us study the lives of Moses and others who were willing to give up the things of this world, who did not live lives of hypocrisy, lives of actors, and who were not afraid to lay it all on the line. In Hebrews 11th chapter, verse 32, Hebrews 11 and verse 32 it says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Imagine that. And what is ahead of us that could be written about us yet in the future? They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. 
Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured. This is the other side of it. Others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mocking and scourgings. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided some better thing or something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And then in the next chapter, it goes on to say in verse 1, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us.